Morning, guys. <clears throat> I was I was thinking uh, I've, I've got to take my glasses off, otherwise I can't read this, so I can't see much of you. You're fuzzy blobs at this point. Um, I was thinking while we were worshiping that if there's one idol, one God that afflicts all of us, it's this. It's the God of comfort. Not, not the God who provides comfort to us, but the, the, the idol that we all have in our hearts, which is comfort. We will pursue comfort above everything. We pursue comfort above the call of God. We pursue comfort above freedom. We pursue comfort above literally everything you can think of. People, people will vote for the, she- for the wolf, I read the other day. People will vote for the wolf as long as the wolf keeps feeding them. It's, it's, a, it's a strange thing that we, we would choose the discomfort of an uncomfortable comfort zone rather than face the fear of what it looks like on the other side. And I really felt this morning during the worship that God wants to confront our, our comfort zones. Some of our comfort zones are very comfortable. Some of them are uncomfortable. Imagine, imagine if you're in an abusive relationship with somebody, and, and I've seen this many times, people say, well, why wouldn't you leave? Well, what's on the other side? How, how can I live without this person, even though they beat the daylights out of me? That's, that's not freedom, that's bondage. And it's fear that keeps us in bondage and comfort zones. Comfort zones, the thing about comfort, comfort zones is that they're sterile. Nothing of any eternal value ever grows in a comfort zone. It's like, if you go to the Dead Sea, anyone been to the Dead Sea? The, um, the area all around the, the Dead Sea is, is mineral salts. It's a harsh, arid environment, and nothing grows there. Because it's just, it's overpowering. And I think comfort zones are like that. So I encourage you, I haven't got into the preach yet, I encourage you as we get into this word that if, if you're feeling that God is taking you outside of a comfort zone, go with that. If you're feeling that, 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 that fear rising in you, but what if, go with that. Go with that. God wants to take us outside of our comfort zones so that we can do extraordinary things and experience extraordinary measures of God that we cannot experience in comfort zones. Comfort zones are, are the enemy, actually. Um, it's true in the physical and it's true in the spiritual even more so. Let's pray. Jesus, I want to thank you that it is for freedom that you have set us free. Freedom from the shackles of our own making, freedoms from, from the shackles of this world, and freedom from the shackles of Satan. I want to thank you, Jesus, that you have bought freedom for us at a terrible price. I want to thank you, Lord, that you have not left us alone, but that you have sent a helper, the Holy Spirit, to equip us and empower us and to enable us to walk the life that you've called us to. I want to thank you, Lord, for the Holy Spirit who gives us wisdom and understanding and courage. I want to thank you, Lord, for transformed lives. I want to thank you, God, that it's not your desire that one person would leave here unchanged. And today we want to pray a bold prayer, Lord. We'll pray more of you. More of you.
And in fact, more importantly than that, more of us. You are the spirit without measure. We want to present more of us to you. So we pray, Father, for clarity of thought, clarity of expression, um, clarity of understanding. I pray, God, for receptive hearts, that you would lift the fog off minds to truly and clearly perceive and understand the glory and the wonder and the majesty of all that you are and, and your infinite love and care and mercy towards us. And that you will not be satisfied until we are not satisfied, until we are transformed into your likeness. In Jesus' name. Amen. I have uh, one title and two subtitles for this preach. The one is The Transformational Power of Pentecost. Subheading is Petering Out of Power or The Idiot's Guide to Following Jesus. It, it never ceases to amaze me. I don't know whether this is something you've ever thought about. That Jesus left the fate of all of humanity for all eternity in the hands of 11 very ordinary men who were his disciples and who were the first apostles. If it were up to me, there are guys on that team who I wouldn't want on my team. The, um, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of Thunder, well, they didn't say much, but they seem to be constantly positioning themselves to be the top of the pile. Then there's uh, Thomas. I have my doubts about him. But he had his doubts too. Perhaps we should say as little as possible about Judas. And then there's Peter. There's something about Peter. Um, of all of the disciples, I probably, I probably identify closest with Peter. The guy can't open his mouth without jamming both of his feet deep down his throat. He just says the most inappropriate things. He's constantly making promises that he doesn't keep. He's writing checks that his, his body can't cash. He's just out there. Chances are that he was uh, called as a teenager. He was a fisherman. Uh, fishermen are great. Um, he, as, as a fisherman, he was somebody you'd be able to smell coming around a corner before you saw him. And not only a fisherman, he came from Galilee, the melting pot of the nations, on the rough end of the, of the shores of Galilee. You could hear he had a funny way of speaking that identified him as an uneducated man. It's a strange choice in many ways. But there's something about Peter. Peter is mentioned probably more than any of the other disciples in, throughout the Gospels. And the reason for that, I think is that he suffered from an intense form of FOMO. He was just in the thick of things. Whenever something was happening, Peter was there. It was Peter who stepped out of the boat onto the water to follow Jesus. You see Peter saying outrageous stuff, but at least he's speaking up. He's giving it a whirl. There's something about Peter. He was also the first disciple to preach after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. Today we're going to track the progress of Peter from his calling as a disciple by Jesus through a few home runs and, and a couple of serious blunders to his denial of Jesus, to his return, and to his first preach. We're going to look at that in some detail. I'm going to start with Matthew 4 verse 18. 
There we go. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, that's Jesus, saw two brothers, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they were, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately, they left their nets and followed him. First point, Peter has a yes face. What do I mean by that? Anybody heard the story of Thomas Jefferson and the yes face? No. Okay, cool. Thomas Jefferson was one of the early uh, presidents of the United States of America. He was the president for, from, for the period 1801 to 1809. And during his presidency, he and a group of his men were on horseback in a flood. And they approached a, a river that was swollen in flood. The bridge had been taken out. And they were deciding to go across. And, and obviously, dangerous time, dangerous moment. And there was a guy there who, who desperately needed to get across. So he approached the group, Thomas Jefferson and his mates, and approached Thomas Jefferson and said, excuse me, sir, would you take me across the river on your horse? And Jefferson said, sure, jump on. And, and true enough, they made it across, and it was a life-threatening experience, but, but they got to the other side, and then Jefferson's men followed him and came across, got to the other side, and one of the Jefferson's men turned to this guy and said, do you know who this guy is? No. He's the president of the United States. And the guy was all shocked. And, and the man said to him, why did, of all of us, why did you choose him? Why did you ask him? Why didn't you ask one of us? And his response was amazing. He said, I looked at all of you, and he had a yes face. I knew if I asked him if I could get across on his horse, he'd say yes. See, Peter had a yes face. Jesus calls, and Peter responded immediately with his brother Andrew. The thing that strikes me as I read this text is, Jesus says to them, come, follow me, I'll make you fishers of men. What does that mean? Like, is Peter going to be throwing nets at people and dragging them down the street? It's improbable. But, but Peter had a yes face. He... He was prepared to follow Jesus, even though I think at that moment he couldn't fully understand what it was that God was calling him to, what it was that Jesus was calling him to do. And, and the question I ask us is, do we have a yes face? Are we prepared to follow Jesus if he says, come, do this? Is it enough that he has spoken? Do we have a yes face? Second scripture, Matthew 16, verse 13 to 18. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea, Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do you say, who do people say, rather, that the Son of Man is? Son of Man is a reference to himself. And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? If you're following in your Bibles, just underline that little I am for a moment. Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
Second bullet point, Peter sometimes gets it right. Peter sometimes gets it right. Jesus asked a very important question, who do you say that I am? In fact, that is probably the most important question we could ask ourselves. Who do we say Jesus is? Teacher? Nice guy? That 2,000-year-old oak? Master? God? So Peter gets it right, and, he, and, and Jesus actually has a, a bit of a pun. I like puns. A bit of a pun in the question, a bit of wordplay. He says, who do you say that I am? You remember that in Exodus, uh, when God speaks to Moses out of the burning bush, he declares himself to be the great I am. Jesus inserts into the question the fact that he is the pre-existing eternal God who appeared to Moses in the burning bush. He is um, Yahweh. He's, he's, he's the Messiah of Israel. So he, he, he has this wordplay. I can almost imagine Jesus having a bit of a smile as he asks the question, who do you say that I am? And, and Peter gets it right. He says, you're the, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus responds with another pun. He says, I say you are Peter, because his name was actually Simon. I say you are Peter, or Petros, which means rock, but it means a rock. And on this Petra, both of them are translated as rock in English, but on, it's a different word. On this Petra, on this mass of rock, on this bedrock, on this monolithic, huge beast of rock, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So what's the rock? The rock, the, the beast rock, is the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Well, I don't have time to discuss in detail what the gates of hell are, but I can tell you this. Gates are a defensive position. Jesus talking about the gates of hell not being able to prevail against Peter's faith and the bedrock truth that he is this, the, the Christ, the son of the living God, those things advance onto the gates of hell, and the gates of hell cannot withstand the advance of that truth and the church advancing in that truth. We're advancing. It's hell that can't stand it. See the difference? Okay. Matthew 16, 21 to 23. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You're a hindrance to me. For you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Point three, Peter sometimes gets it wrong. Peter's so pumped about getting the last question right, because this, this text follows Peter getting the, the, the question right about uh, who do you say that I am. He assumes that he is now the spiritual authority on all matters as pertaining to Jesus. 
And, and he rebukes Jesus, which is probably ill-advised. And, and Jesus says the most remarkable thing to him, says, get behind me, Satan. So he's just said to Peter, flesh and blood has not revealed this truth to you, but my Father in heaven. So Peter's up here. And now he calls him Satan. And Satan, it's an interesting word. In, in the original, um, and you'll find this in the Old Testament, um, Satan wasn't a proper, proper name. It was the Satan. It means the opposer, the one opposed to the purposes of God. So he was saying, Peter, by setting your mind on the things of men and not the things of God, by ignoring the very reason that I came to the earth to suffer and die for your salvation, when you do that, you're opposing me. You're opposing God, and you're aligning yourself with the purposes of Satan. Bad theology gets us to line up with the purposes of Satan. It's quite a hectic thought. So, so uh, Peter gets it wrong sometimes. Luke 22, 31 to 34. You following so far? Is there anything I need to just elaborate on? Good? Okay. This is just, I'm getting fuzzy agreement because I can't see you clearly. Um, Luke 22, verse 31 to 34. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And if you're following your Bible, please underline this sentence. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go to you both to prison and to death. You can tell he's a, he's a, he's a teenager, right? Um, Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny three times that you know me. Point number four. Peter's future failure, because he hadn't failed yet, Peter's future failure was not a deal breaker for Jesus. Jesus knew that Peter would fail and that his failure would be an opportunity for Satan to attack. Have you considered that, that, that the text records that Satan demanded to have you that he may sift you like wheat? Why? Because Jesus said, if you deny me before, God, before men, I will deny you before the Father. Satan had every right to Peter. And Jesus' response in anticipation of this failure was not to discard him, but to pray for him. That's the most remarkable thing. So, so, so Jesus understands that Peter is going to fail, and fail at the most profound fundamental level, and his response is not to turn away from him, but to stand in the gap for him. And he says, when you return, or when you turn, and, and that that carries with it the idea of repentance. Repentance in the Old Testament is a word that means to walk north and then you turn around and you walk south. It's to turn. That's what repentance is. So, so Jesus is saying to him, when you repent, when you come back to your senses, when you come back to me, strengthen your brothers. And the truth in that is, not that we're not going to fail. It's almost inevitable. In fact, I'm being kind of generous. It's inevitable that we're going to fail. 
We're going to fail. We're going to say that we're going to do something for Jesus and we're not going to do it. It's going to happen. We're going to fail at some point. The important thing is not just that you fail. Not that I'm advocating failing. I'm saying when it happens. It's what we do next. Because when we turn, we're able to strengthen our brothers. Why? Because God's strength is perfected not in our strength, but in our weakness. So, there's a law in theology called the law of first mention. It's the first time that you see something in the Bible that's important. Pay attention. Okay? Jesus' first sentence of his first prophetic, uh, of his first uh, preach in the Gospels is an important statement because that sets the tone for the rest of his ministry and, and, and really for the church. So the first line he says in his first preach, set up and pay attention. You'd agree? Anyone know what he said? He said this, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When I first read that, I thought, why would you want to be poor in spirit? Surely you want to be rich in spirit. It makes no sense to be poor in spirit. Why would you be poor in spirit and inherit the kingdom of heaven? Because of the rest of the promises and the Beatitudes, which is where I'm drawing that from, except one, says theirs will be the kingdom of heaven. This one says yours is the kingdom of heaven. What is it about being poor in spirit? What does that mean? It means this. Blessed are those who understand their own spiritual poverty before God, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Or, blessed are those who come to God with empty hands, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Or, blessed are those who are not self-sufficient, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the idol of this age and the idol of every age is comfort, because comfort is an expression of self-sufficiency. That's what it is. And the thing that keeps us in the prison of self-sufficiency is fear. What happens if I'm no longer in control? What happens if it's not about me? What happens if I let God do what he wants to do? Can he be trusted? It's, it's the challenge of Satan in the Garden of Eden where he says to Eve, has God really said? Is God really good? It's, it's, it's so fundamental, it is so key to our understanding of what the kingdom of God is about, that it's the very first line that Jesus speaks. And it's embedded in the story about Peter, because Jesus says, when you've come to your senses, when you understand it's not about your strength, your courage, your conviction, it's about me strengthening you. When you come back to your senses, in your weakness, you'll then be able to strengthen your brother's. Not from a position of I've got it made, but from a position of I know what it is to fail, and God's grace is sufficient for me. It's a profound truth. Okay, that was a bit of an excursus. Mark 14, verse 29. Anyone got any questions about that? That was quite a big chunk. Any questions? No? Okay. I'm going to assume that an absence of questions means an abundance of understanding. Peter said to him, even though they all fall away, I will not. 
Mark 14, 72. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time, and Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. <coughs> Subheading five, the struggle is real. We all make promises to God with the best of intentions that we don't keep. Peter wept about his broken promises. That's better than indifference. Um, Lumineers sing a song. They say the opposite of love is indifference. I think that's right. It's not hate. Jesus says in the book of Revelation to the church of Laodicea, I'd rather that you're hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, you're somewhere in between. Because you're indifferent, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. So at least, at least, at least Peter's struggle was real. God can work with that. There's none of us who haven't failed God. Not one. Mark 16, verse 7. But go tell his disciples and Peter. Read that again. But go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. This is, a, this is an angel standing outside of the, the empty tomb speaking to, um, I think it's Mary, and he says, go and tell the, tells Mary, go and tell the disciples and Peter to go to Galilee and you'll meet him there. Which makes uh, Mary the first functional apostle. To declare the risen Christ. It's quite a thing. Number six, Jesus is kind. This is the angel sending a message to the disciples that the risen Christ would meet with them. So Peter was a disciple. Why then did the angel say, tell the disciples and Peter? Surely he could have said, tell the disciples, because Peter was included in the crew. Yeah? Except that in Peter's mind, he had disqualified himself because of his denial of Jesus. And unless the angel specifically said, go and tell the disciples and Peter, he wouldn't have gone. That's what happens. When we fail, and I'm not saying take failure lightly, I'm, I'm, or, or sin, or whatever it is, I'm not saying take it lightly, but, but that's not the end of the road. Jesus anticipated Peter's failure and said, when you get up again, strengthen your brothers. It's really important to understand this. Our, our failures don't disqualify us. They qualify us to experience his grace so that when we get up in his grace, we can go and strengthen others. How can I put this another way? God is not sitting at the edge of heaven saying, I didn't see that coming. He did. And he wove it into your destiny. John 21, verse 15 to 18. So at this point, um, Jesus had, had appeared to the disciples. I think he'd given them some breakfast, if memory serves. And, and this is what transpires next. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. 
He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he'd said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where, carry you, where you do not want to go. Seven subheading. All you need is love, love, love. Jesus asked Peter three times whether he loved him. Is anyone else confused by that passage? I mean, why didn't he get it the first time? Why did he have to ask three times? And why, why, why did he tie, why did Jesus tie Peter's love for him, for Jesus, with, with tending sheep? What's he talking about? Isn't he a fisherman? So Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you agapeo me? Do you, do you have a agape love for me? Do you have a love that will die for me? Do you have a love that will, that will put down your interests to pursue my interests? Do you have a love that will sacrifice for me? Because Jesus so loved the world that he died for us, right? Jesus so agapeoed the world that he died for us. When Jesus gives a commandment, a new command I give, you, give to you that you love one another as I loved you, the word there is agapeo. It's, it's a different quality of love. It's a supernatural love. It's a love that we can only truly express if we've supernaturally received it by impartation of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says to, to Peter, do you agapeo me? And Peter says, you know that I phileo you. I have brotherly affection towards you. We translate it as love, but it's, it's actually a completely different thing. Jesus is saying, do you love me enough to die for me and to die for the sheep I'm sending you to? He says, you know I'm affectionate towards you. You're one of my homies. I have a love for you like a brother. And Jesus' repetition is indicating it's not enough. Sheep bite. They don't take direction well. I'm sending you to look after people who are going to resist you and be stubborn and, and struggle to follow you as they've struggled to follow me because sheep are not the sharpest tools in the shed. They're not the greatest creatures around. They're flipping difficult, and they bite. If you're going to survive tending my bitey sheep for my glory, is not going to do it. You need agapeo. Yeah? And, and Peter didn't get it yet. He gets it later. But at that moment, Peter didn't understand that it's not enough to love God, to love Jesus, with the kind of love that you have for one of the guys you hang out with. It's simply not enough. There's a supernatural love that is required to tend sheep. Am I right? <laughs> yeah, I'm getting a nod. Don't bite the shepherd. Um, right, where were we? If you think about it, 
When Jesus said, this command I leave with you, that you love one another as I have loved you, and, and Jesus loved people by dying for them, all of the commandments are wrapped up in that one. It's even greater in one sense than the two great commandments, love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself. Because if you can love your neighbor with agape, you clearly love God and you love your neighbor not only as yourself but as Jesus does. That's a profound thing. Right, Acts 2, verse 14 to 32. I'm going to read a huge chunk of Scripture. Let me just tell you what this is about. So the Holy Spirit falls at Pentecost. Um, just by way of background, Jesus, before he ascended, said, go to, go to Jerusalem and wait for me. He said to his disciples, go to Jerusalem and wait for me. I'm sending this, the Holy Spirit to you. But go and wait and pray. So a bunch of believers, the disciples and others, go to, go to Jerusalem and they're waiting and they're, they're waiting in the upper room and they're praying and praying and praying. And suddenly the Holy Spirit arrives and, and falls on them like tongues of fire over their head and they start speaking in other languages, earthly languages, declaring the glory of God. And people, Jewish people from around the known world who were present in Jerusalem because of the feast, understood what they were saying because they were speaking in their home tongue. They were speaking languages from around the corners of the globe, from all over the world. And, and that's what happened at Pentecost. So this happens, the Holy Spirit falls, and then Peter preaches this, this sermon. But Peter, standing with the eleven, so that's the eleven disciples that replaced Judas by now, um, Lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my work. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock in the morning. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. On your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Have you noticed that you're having more and more vivid dreams. Yeah? God's on the move, eh? Something's happening. Even on my male servants and my female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's not Peter hiding from a, 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 a girl around a campsite, around a fire, denying that he knows Jesus. Something's happened. He tells him, you killed him. Um, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he's at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you, you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I, I may say to you with confidence 
about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing what God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set up one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ that was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh seek corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witness. Unfortunately, I don't have time to look at that sermon in detail. It would take me hours. But I can summarize it or sum it up in this way. What a cracker sermon. What a cracker sermon. No, No iPad, no electronic version of the Bible with five... Um, uh, uh, what do you call those things? Uh, commentaries. Um, no PowerPoints, nothing. Off the cuff, he preaches this absolute cracker. He quotes perfectly accurately, perfectly accurately. Old Testament um, scriptures, word for word, verbatim correctly. And he then unpacks them perfectly, not only. Uh, Exegesis, which means uh, to, to unpack or to lead out the scripture as it would have been understood at the time that it was written. But he then applies it hermeneutically, which, by which I mean he applies it to their circumstances at that time. Peter, Peter nailed this thing like a professor of theology on, on the next level. A teenager, an uneducated man, a fisherman, with a funny accent, he preached this sermon. Not only did he preach it, but he preached it fearlessly, absolutely fearlessly, to the very people who'd crucified Jesus and could crucify him. Something happened. Something happened. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. The same Holy Spirit that got hold of Peter and transformed him and ignited the words that Jesus had spoken to him over three years and made them come alive and gave him the authority to say these things to men who could kill him. That power is available to us. That person is available to us. Acts 4 verse 13, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John, they perceived that they were uneducated common men, and they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. <coughs> Point number nine, the power flowing from the baptism in the Holy Spirit is transcendent. What do I mean by that? It's not limited by geographical origin. It's not limited by education. It's not limited by profession. It's not limited by age. It's not limited by gender. It's not limited by anything. You know the word that's translated here as uh, uneducated, common men? The word common there, the original Greek, idiotes. It's where we get the word idiot from. It's probably less harsh in the original, but, but it, it means um, uneducated, ignorant men. So, so, so the people around Peter and John say, this boldness and this... This power at work in in Peter and John is is remarkable because these are idiots. But they recognize that they spent time with Jesus. See, it it doesn't matter 
how ignorant and uneducated and limited we may be in our own faculties, if we spend time with Jesus and we're filled with the Holy Spirit, there's nothing we cannot do for the kingdom. Absolutely nothing. He is unlimited. Who wants that? Okay, who doesn't want that? Stick your hand up. Okay, cool. So you all want that. Good. But it's going to take something. It's going to take the courage which God gives us to step outside of your comfort zone and to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit if you haven't received it, to be empowered to do stuff that you could never in a million years imagine doing without it. Who's up for that? Yeah? Yeah? One. Cool. So we're going to have a time of ministry. We're going to pray. If you haven't received the infilling of the Holy Spirit, I I encourage you to tell us that so we can pray for it specifically. If you have and you're feeling flat, Paul says um, in one of his epistles, be filled with the Holy Spirit. The, The tense is present continuous. It's be filled with the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Why? Because we leak. We leak. Because, because we live in a world that has fallen and we don't always face Jesus. We leak. Sometimes we need to be filled afresh. In fact, it's suggested from the present continuous tense in Paul's letter is that we need to be filled daily with his presence, with his spirit, to be empowered to live the life that he's called us to. Okay, cool. So we're going to pray. I think there's some, some able-bodied people who... Uh, we're going to pray up front. But, but let me just pray generally, and then I'm going to invite you. Whoever wants prayer, come forward, and we're going to pray for you. Is that cool? Okay. Jesus, you promised that you would not leave us orphans, but that you would send a helper, one like you, the Holy Spirit, to equip us, to empower us, to fill us to guide us and to lead us. We pray, Lord, this morning, sitting on the sunny north coast of KZN, that you would come among us in power, that you would fill us, Lord, with your spirit, that you would pour out the baptism of your spirit in in a measure that we have never either experienced or even had the courage to to hope for. We acknowledge, Lord, that this is holy ground and that it is your desire to fill your temple, each of us. We pray, Lord, that you would you would overcome our fear, our slavish devotion to comfort, that you would set us free by filling us with you. Displace the stuff of lesser value and fill every corner of our souls with more and more and more of you. We want to see a world transformed by your kingdom advancing. And we pray, God, use us. We are not satisfied. We're not satisfied with white picket fences and comfortable lives. We're not satisfied. We need you. 
We're not satisfied to stumble from month to month just living in just enough, just enough, just enough. We need you. We need you in our relationships, God. We need you in our engagement with the lost world that desperately, desperately needs you. We want to thank you, Lord, for your presence that is tangible even now. We thank you for your kindness and your mercy. And we pray, Lord, fill us.